We're living in difficult times. Equilibria believes that now, more than ever, their products can provide support and balance for women in need. That mission is at the core of everything they do. At Equilibria, CBD isn't hype, it's health. Designed with modern women in mind, EQ takes all the guesswork out of CBD. After you've made a purchase, simply schedule a consultation with one of their trained dosage specialists and they'll get you on the path towards balance. Their assortment of premium products arrive at your doorstep in swoon-worthy packaging. Whether it's daily soft gels you seek, balancing bath bombs, or a mindful mineral soak, your order is tailored to help your specific needs and can be purchased on subscription for trouble-free restocking. Curious? Use code OFFTHEGRAM for 15% off your first purchase. Trust me, you'll thank us. We're so good at talking. We're so used to talking. But when it comes to this moment, I think so much of what we can learn is through listening to people and what they share that we might not have been able to hear otherwise and and be able to be in this moment um, of of deep listening. And then with that, I can take action, right? Welcome back to Off the Gram, the show where we bring you straight into the trenches with us to help you live your best life, channel your inner girl boss, and navigate the ever-changing landscapes of wellness and social media. Hey, guys. Hi. How is everybody? Living the dream. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Jane, that sounds good. (laughs) All right. So today... We are thrilled to be talking with our amazing guest, named one of Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul 100, a celebrity doula and maternity wellness expert who supports women in embracing optimal wellness and spiritual growth as a pathway to empowerment. She is leading a revolution in radical self-care, guiding women everywhere to mother themselves first. What a concept! Our guest is the founder of Mama Glow, a global women's health and education brand serving women along the childbearing continuum. Mama Glow supports women and families during their fertility period, pregnancy, birth, as well as during postpartum offering, hand-holding through their bespoke doula services. She also led my favorite prenatal yoga teacher training ever and her latest book, Own Your Glow, A Soulful Guide to Luminous Living and Crowning the Queen, just released on paperback from Hay House on June 16th. So please welcome a true goddess of life, Latham Thomas. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. We're so thrilled to have you here. So we first dive into things with a weekly catch up and you just moderated a pretty awesome panel on the lack of diversity um, in wellness industry. So for our weekly catch up topic, we'd really like to tackle that and hear your thoughts um, and dive right into that. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it was with well and good and there was four, uh, four of us. Three panelists, um, Nicole Cardoza, who um, founded Reclamation Ventures and Yoga Foster, which is a nonprofit organization that brings yoga into schools that are in um, underserved areas. Um, Miriam Ajayi, who is the founder of Dive In Well, which is a diversity and wellness venture that it was already here before this whole moment started, but she was doing incredible work in bringing um, conversations and uh, 
partnerships and, and really cool, uh, I would say spaces for people to gather around wellness topics and also to, um, to talk about like how to create more equity in the wellness space. And then, um, Elisa, who is the founder of, um, Heal House, Heal House. Yeah. The beautiful Heal House, which is in Brooklyn, New York. And it's a, um, it's a wellness haven, I would say, for all people. It certainly centers the experiences of um, people of color wanting to find um, camaraderie in, in spaces where, like, usually they might be outnumbered, right? Like in a yoga class or something like that. So different body types, um, all people are, are welcome. And it's sort of like a cafe slash indoor space. And they also have, like, an outdoor um sort of area where they conduct classes. And so it was the three of us or three of them and myself, I'm having this conversation and really like, you know, making it a space to open up what it would be like to raise money um, as a woman of color and wellness and understanding that um, it's like 0.02% of, um, of capital actually goes to women of color. Right. Which means like nobody's getting funded. And cause we already know like women aren't getting funded. Right. And so then you, you know, you see that even, even beyond that, women of color aren't getting funded for incredible work they're doing in, in different areas. And this, obviously wellness is one of those. Um, there was conversation around the like cultural appropriation. There was conversation around, um, around access and being able to find spaces where like, if you're in a certain community, are there even yoga centers there? Is there, you know, access in terms of, um, you know, making things uh, just affordable and um, a lot of wellness is cost prohibited for so many people. And so that was one of the things we discussed as well. And then we also talked about the, um, the actions that we all can take, right. the people who, are in this space who already have businesses who want to transform their businesses, want to make them more equitable, want to uh, make them more um, inclusive, what people can do. And so there was a bunch of actions that were given. And I would say that uh, it was also a very affirming space for so many people who I think are struggling as business leaders and people who haven't probably gotten the visibility they should uh, for being practitioners in this space it was one where they could, um, you know, feel they could like exhale, right. And feel like, wow, like these, these experiences I'm having are real. And, um, and I'd like to sort of move past this and, and be in a discussion about like how we can do better and what that looks like and, um, and have real support and what that looks like for everybody to put their resources together to support. And so well and good did a, a nice, um, um, there was a, donation-based um, ticket. So um, everybody involved got the proceeds, which were 100% of the proceeds were given to the organizations of the people who were speaking, which is so great, right? To see that, you know, people really want to make this discussion, not just, um, you know, not just one of fluff, like, oh, let's just talk about these things, but let's also make action around it. And, um, and I think that they've made a, a real commitment also to try to shift how they've been positioning their content and their experts and stuff. So, um, and also their writers and looking at like company wide, how they can make a difference. So I think everyone's sort of taking this moment to either, uh, clean house and figure out how to, you know, address like where they want to make a difference and, 
and other people aren't, right? So I think it's a really interesting time, right, for everyone. But that was a great discussion. I think there was a lot of great gems. It's available to watch so people can can watch it at any time. But I think it's like the first of like many things like that that should be happening. It's something I'm so proud of, Ed. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. I was just going to say, I just think it's so important that you're doing things like that because so many of us want to do something and we want to say something, but we also don't want to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. So having leaders like you do this and having, you know, someone like Well and Good put up this platform for that, I think is a, a great step to help us all sort of follow and maybe, you know, take you guys taking the lead. Just it gives us a little bit more direction. So thank you for that. But go ahead, Megan. Well, I feel like at Hearst, we've really been taking an initiative with all of our magazines. We've all been through allyship training now. Mm-hmm. We've made a very big concerted effort to hire more, you know, black writers, people of color, make sure we're telling more stories about, you know, black women, black businesses, and really highlighting and surfacing those stories and having uncomfortable conversations. Because I think like in the yoga space specifically, it has sort of notoriously been known as like this rich white woman's hobby. And, and, you know, like I hadn't before this time really looked around my yoga studio and said, wow, there's only two people of color in this classroom. What can we do about that? I mean, I'm, clearly not a racist, but I wasn't as actively anti-racist as I could have been. It just didn't dawn on me to look around the studio and say, hey, there's not enough representation here. This isn't an inclusive environment. Even though it's a loving, happy environment, there's a lot of white people in here. I think like a lot of this has been very eye-opening for me within the wellness space, just to be sure that we're getting uncomfortable, having uncomfortable conversations, and then doing something about it. Um, so, taking action. So Latham, as somebody like I met you like through the yoga world. And so obviously that's part of who you are, but I guess my, and not that you have all the answers, but you know, you have a lot of perspective because you're an expert in wellness and you know, you're an expert in a lot of things. <laughs> um, but uh, I guess my question to you would be like, what steps do you think that, you know, studio owners need to make or teacher trainings need to make or or yoga teachers need to make that would allow something like just because yoga is such an easy target, like it's such a specific example rather than being broad and not really getting to the nitty gritty. Like what are steps that you feel would help that inclusivity for yoga? I mean, I think there's so many things that can be done, but I I think that it has to start with, um, you know, the, this person or studio owner or teacher, um, being coming from a space of being like, that's who they are. Right. Like if I'm someone who is looking around, like I was someplace, I forget where it was. And, um, and this guy pointed out, he's like, I don't feel comfortable because he's like, I feel like I'm the only gay person here. And I feel like this is the only other POC here. And I don't understand why people are acting like this is normal. Like when you go outside of this room, it's New York and then inside of this room. Right. And so, um, I think that, uh, you know, everybody has to do their parts. I think like assess like where they're at and look around and see sort of where, um, where there are gaps. I think in our teaching, you know, understanding that, you know, I mean, Megan said, you know, there's a lineage, right. Um, of yoga that has really been severed from where it comes from and the people like, I don't, I, I have some teachers who are Indian and I have a very good friend who is a um, meditation teacher who is Indian. But um, when I go to classes, that is not who is teaching the classes. Right. Or, um, you know, just, I think just taking like, you know, 
severing things from the connection is really something we have to assess like how we do because if you see how you know what appropriation looks like there's a way to think appreciate something but not appropriate it Mm -hmm. um and so i think there's a way to you know practice something but understand that it's deep within a lineage right and then what does it mean to like practice it in this way today and take away all of the other pieces that were supposed to be a part of the experience and just only do the fitness Right. Or just right. And so it changes the experience. It changes the intention of practice and then also how it shows up in the world and what it looks like in terms of branding. Right. So so the branded yoga experience in the West looks a certain way. Right. Because it it's not tied to India. Right. It's not. So I always say that, like in India, for the longest, women were not allowed to practice yoga. Right, and it was actually designed <laughs> for for to. It was a practice designed for teenage boys, right? For people present boys, and and so it was not designed really for women to practice. And and even the the practice that women did engage in um, was. It was movement, but it was all, but it was particularly around, um, childbirth, right? So it wasn't around, like, it wasn't the way that we practice it, right? So I think that when we, when we take things out of context and then we, you know, it's great. Like, I love yoga. It's been very helpful in my life, but I think it is important to, to remember that, like, there, there's a place and it's ancient that it comes from. And I think that when we look at everything that we, that we appropriate or that we, benefit from in our culture like i think like the same with matcha like matcha is like huge here it's like you go everywhere there's like a amazing place that's blasting like music and you go in and you can do all these variations of matcha and it's like a ceremonial tea you know it's a ceremonial um uh and sacred sort of process that's in meditation it's meditative but there's a but there's a process that's involved. It's not just like a thing that you throw some ice over it and like some really fun like designs and you you know what I mean and some oat milk and then you're on your way. It's not that. So I think you know it's important to just realize when we're doing these things that can that can be seen as like um, you know for the people who are looking in that are like that's an aspect of my culture. It looks disrespectful, you know. So I think we have to just uh, really look at how we're how we're moving. And I think it also takes like listening to the people, you know, who are around, like listening to the other people of color, the people who you're practicing with, the people who you're teaching. You know, I think it's, it's a lot of reading. I think it's doing workshops. I think it's learning, um, and unlearning really. And I think it's, but I think a lot of it is listening because I think, you know, we're so, we're so good at talking. We're so used to talking, but when it comes to, uh, this moment, I think so much of what we can learn is through listening to people and what they share that we might not have been able to hear otherwise and, and be able to be in this moment, um, of, of deep listening. And then with that, I can take action, right? If I, but I have to hear something first to know like what to move on. And if it's just my thoughts that I'm hearing, I'm not probably going to make the right moves, right? Totally. I totally hear agree. And, and I absorb it, absorb mm-hmm. what you're hearing, not just like in, out. Yeah. And I, I wanted to mention, like, you know, maybe for some of our listeners who aren't from like New York or LA, like what this might look like. Cause I think they might not, everybody might not understand exactly what we're talking about. Just to give a good example, Y7 is a good example. Um, they are a yoga studio in New York. They are a, uh, hot hip hop candlelight yoga, yeah. uh, 
studio and they're in New York and across California. Um, a place, it was a place I loved to go and, um, and I think they've done a lot of great things, but I had heard from my, um, black friends in the past, um, one of my friends in particular, she said, you know, I, I do like Y7, but I, I'm not going to go to that class with you on the Upper East Side because the cultural appropriation really gets to me. And I kind of thought, oh, I, you know, I understand that. That's interesting. And then I like went off to my yoga class. I've really taken a step back after this. And so has Y7. I think they've done a really good job. I'd be curious to know what you heard, but I got an email from them that was company, you know, it was to all of their members saying, here's what we're doing. And they are literally doing a full on step back and a rebrand because they realized that while they were trying to create a space that was fun and celebratory, uh, and it was in many senses of the word, they, you know, their entire business is built on the back of hip hop music and culture. And there is something off about that at the end of the day with all of this coming to light and they listen to their community. And so they've done like a full strip down. Do you have an opinion on that? I'm curious to hear how you think they responded to that. Yeah. I mean, I love Y7. Um, Sarah, who's a founder is a good friend. And, um, you know, there's one a block from my house, you know, or two blocks. So I would go there, you know, uh, when it wasn't, the time of quarantine, um, not that often, but I would go like whenever I wanted to be in like some sort of community kind of space, you know, with my practice, I appreciated the, um, the breadth of sort of musical choices. There was always something like, uh, it was always thoughtful in terms of, um, the arc and, you know, of movement and it felt very communal as an experience. And so, and I liked that it was always candlelit so that whatever size, shape, whatever was going on for you, it was just you in that moment, but also in the context of like this group experience. So, um, so I think there's a lot of virtue in, in like the, the, the way that they approached the actual experience. But, um, but yeah, I mean, like all of the, uh, you know, whether it's, um, the, the slogans or whatever, like whether it's t-shirts or whether it's just like, uh, in terms of the branding of the space is all from, you know, hip hop songs that I grew A tribe up called with. sweat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, we people pop that I know, you know what I mean? And they're, and, and things that they, uh, built their, their entire careers on. Um, and so, so yes, yeah, so there was all of that, which, you know, was always, I was always aware of. And I think everybody, like you said, your friends are, are aware of it. And, um, and I think that it was probably only a matter of time that they would have to sort of reckon with that and, and be in, in dialogue about what that means to sort of, um, it's like sort of, we take all this away. Like what, who are we right without proximity to hip hop, without proximity to blackness, who are we kind of thing. And I think, um, then when you look at that, you're like, well, who am I? Right. So what do we do now? So if we, if we, how do we sort of get in relation, get in right relationship with, um, with where we stand in the context of this moment and, um, and the things that we love, right? So it's the same thing like appropriation and appreciation. You can appreciate something without like having to wrap yourself in it. You know, like I love when people go to other countries and they'll be like, 
oh yeah, I'm like, um, now I'm like teaching like shamanic journeying. I'm like, you are? Like, <laughs> didn't you just go to like a retreat like three, like three days ago? Like, right. why is shaman here who is right. like, you know, initiated in, in a lifelong experience of what this is and not like try to, you know, again, I'm going to take this thing and now use it as a, a, a way to power broker my way through like the wellness community that's like really harmful and also these things are ancient you know so i think um i'm always i think about like um examples that we teach like in um in with the doulas where if i work with you and you're coming from a different community background a different you know uh background uh ethnically and maybe even spiritually the first questions that i'm asking are, um, is there anything, you know, in your spiritual belief system that I should know about? And that's like, I'm not assuming anything I'm asking and you can tell me things that are, you know, that mean something to you. And then guess what I can go do? I can like research. I'm going to learn about like where you grew up, where you're from, where your ancestry is. Cool. I might go research and find out about this really cool tradition, right? I don't have to now try to like implement it. I can say to you, Hey, you know, it was so great meeting and learning all these things about you and your family, you know, and then I I came across this really cool article about this particular practice. And I can just say like, you know, have you heard of this? Does it mean anything to you? Oh my God, it's amazing. My grandmother used to do that. I never got to have a chance to try that. I would love to bring that into my journey. Like then I can be like an arbiter of, you know, um, uh, of safety, of transmission of culture without having to actually appropriate it. I can now bring this into your, into the fold and say, okay, like, let's figure out like how to make this happen for you. Right. And so, and whatever that looks like, but I don't have to now say, oh, let me go now learn how to do this event and try to do this for her. I don't have to do that. I can just be myself and be concerned and want to sort of help you stay connected to and tethered to your culture and help introduce something to you that you may not even have known about, right? And so I think it's important that, again, that we that we show up in, in a space of listening and show up in a space of wanting to learn and um, and being careful about that line. And I and I think a lot of people, you know, like Y seven are are in this space of having to question what it means, like what they put out in the world, and 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 if it's something that. Like, is it sustainable? Like when we rebrand, is there like, what is the business when we rebrand it? Like, what will it look like? Will it be the same? Like, are we going to alienate people that we already had? Are we going to get more people as a result? Is this going to be a brand tanker for us? Or is this going to really propel us into the next phase? Is it, are we going to be unscathed? Or are we going to not be able to bounce back? Like, I think all these questions come up for people around, you know, how to reckon in this moment and, and how to, um, I think design their businesses for the future, but it's an important, journey to take. And it's an important thing for us to do when we think about, um, I mean, we do it too. Like in, in our space, it's about looking at gender inclusivity in birth, right? Like we have to also look and see, well, where are we not being inclusive in our language or, or in our dialogue? Um, are there folks who come in who may feel like it's not a safe space because we're not using language that signals that they're safe here, right? So I think every like no matter what type of privilege you have, what type of community you're in, you're going to face this sort of um, uh, opportunity, I would say, not like challenge or really an opportunity to show up and be in um, in a rich dialogue that's about healing, right? And repairing, 
but also about preemptively anticipating people's needs, right? Mm-hmm. By like not causing the harm to begin with, right? So if we start to see in advance, like what, like what are we doing? If I'm surrounded by people of different voices, backgrounds, you know, all together, my board or whatever, or my advisors or my like, you know, kind of like spiritual committee of, of people who I chime in with when things are hard, if that's a diverse group, right? Then those people are going to be like, Oh yeah, girl, don't do that. <laughs> or yeah. you know what? Like you should like send us to your lawyer to look at, or you know, I would, you know, like people will say things to you and you won't be in a situation, right? If like, you have like a couple people who could have said, Yeah, that might be a problem. I mean, it might be okay in the beginning, but it might show up as a problem later. Then you have like the foresight to be able to like make a decision. And, and if you're leading with intention, that decision should always be in the, um, in the interest of good, right? So it always should be like, I want to make a difference first versus like money. But if you're leading with money, then yeah, you might make the thing that like in the short run makes you money. And in the long run, you have to like dismantle. So, I mean, I would say like right now is a time for people to really be doing this work ahead of the calling out ahead of, you know, um, the, these reckoning moments. Cause everything that is sitting on top of, um, sand, you know, every, all these castles of sand are being washed away and are crumbling down. That's not what I'm saying about this company because I love Y7, but I mean, like other companies, right? Yeah. Like everything is starting to, you know, castles of sand are falling. And so, you know, I think with, with, I think with them, you know, I would love to see, I got that letter as well. I would love to see, you know, what, what comes of it for them. And I think that, you know, Sarah with a new baby, you know, she's going to be also so creative right now and, and figuring out like how she wants to move, you know, in this next phase of her life. And so I think it's a, it's a potent time for her to figure out like the next, the next step. And I this think is Christine, also- like what you were saying. Oh. I keep doing that to you, Christine. <laughs> I was just going to say what you were speaking to. Um, not just that brand, every brand. It's like everyone just made that first move and not taking that next step in mind. You know, what do you do? What do we do next? How do you not just take, just say something and not go through the motions after that and, and really back up what you're saying? You know, ASIC, if you looked on Instagram, for example, ASICs, Nike, this one, that one, shoe companies, everybody, it's like we're rebranding, we're re, we're re, you know, we're remarketing, we're, we're only hiring black influencers, which is all great. But at the same time, it's like, okay, you go from one extreme to the other. And then I don't know. I mean, it's almost, I also think that it's Megan speaking. I think there's a very big learning curve. So I speak to a magazine with 18 million readers and a lot of them are in the middle of the country. You know, all my friends are enlightened New York and LA people. And when I realize when I'm speaking to the middle of the country, the distinction between things like appreciation and appropriation, which I'm currently writing an article on to help make these distinctions clear, like it's, they don't get it. You know, I think, you know, the average unenlightened human is like, well, I like hip hop music. I don't get it. Right. And so I think that there's a lot of, I think the key here is there's so much learning that has to happen before people can really take action because there is a huge portion of the population who still doesn't get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, uh, like I'm in charge of the people in my household who are under 18 <laughs> and, um, and I'm also in charge of myself, right. And making sure that the way that I sort of, um, manage my energy is such that, um, 
I'm protective of it so that when I go out into the world, that when I come back, I'm not depleted, that I can do the work I do in the world. And so part of that is teaching, but it's like, I think our discipleship, right? The people who are here that we have the listening ear are the ones who are ready to listen. It is not really our job to um, try to be missionaries and go out into the world and like uh, place information upon people that are not ready to receive it because they won't receive it until they're ready. And so I think what, what makes most sense is really speaking to the ones who are already here and ready for this conversation and like, you know, really um, drooling for more to give them more and give them tools and give them conversation starters and things to do with it, to talk to the people that they are close to who are not in any position uh, to have this conversation, right? Like let them do that work on their own people because that's really their burden. Right. And so um, I think that's how it has to be done because it can't be the burden of the people who are just now getting like a time, a, a moment to breathe, right? It cannot be the burden of people of color to now be like, okay, we have to go out and be like, you know, and preach this word. No, we have to actually like catch our breath to heal and to rest and to, and to be in a, in a position to actually dictate what our needs are so that people can align and support and be in allyship. And, and so, um, and so I think the best use of the energy is where like wherever it is percolating to like put the messages there, right. To go to the people who who are, who are interested in the dialogue. And, and what I know about, um, you know, about movements and about like, uh, and also about uh, people is that they're social creatures and they're also very uh, tribal. Right. And so what happens is like, if enough people are thinking one thing, everybody starts to think it. It's like, if you weren't liking Justin Bieber before you like Justin Bieber now, right. If you didn't like, whoever it was, like you're, you're on it now. Like nobody, like it's undisputable. You like Beyonce because everybody loves Beyonce. Right. So we, we, we all like, no matter where you are, you sort of come to this confluence, this moment, right. Where, um, enough people are moving a certain direction and what happens, which is part of like how we're developed and how our nervous systems work is we entrain with like the dominant energy. And if the dominant energy is moving a direction of change, eventually everybody gets swept up into it. It just happens. Right. And so, um, and, and so, yes, there's outliers. Yes. There's people who will not like, you know, they're, that are just going to be staunch and like, I'm not coming fine. They can say, right. But there are going to be people who get swept into it, who were ambivalent. And now they're like on the side of, of, um, of righteousness or justice. Right. And so we want to kind of keep, uh, beating a drum. We want to keep a rhythm going. We want to keep active. We want to keep our finger on the pulse and we want to keep people engaged and not think that the work is ever done. Right. It's always like what with wellness, we know that the work is never done. We know that every day we show up to the office of wellness. Every day we show up to the office of our health. We check in, we do our things. We do what we can to, uh, to advance ourselves emotionally, spiritually, physically. We challenge ourselves because you can't just not do it for like 20 days and then get up and think that everything's right. Like you have to continuously be engaged this way. And so the same thing here, when we're thinking about being in a moving in like an anti-racist fashion and moving in, in terms of uh, designing for inclusivity, like it is the everyday showing up thing, right? It's every day we're going to have to say, Hey, that's not right. Hey, we should do this. Hey, like constantly. And it's cool in a sense because 
it gives us an opportunity also to do things that we didn't get to do before. Like, um, you know, there's conversations that you're going to be privy to where now you could like, I mean, you could change somebody's like next quarter, you know what I mean? <laughs> By just putting their name in a hat or you're going to be able to bring people into a conversation and introduce folks to, you know, um, different areas, whether it's conferences or speaking engagements, whether it's profiles, whether it's um, takeovers, whatever it is, I mean, whether it's something like this, a podcast, right? Like whatever it is, like that's an opportunity now for people to be in dialogue with your, with your new person that you introduced. Right. So I think like, um, we just have to keep our, 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 our finger on the pulse with it. And we have to speak to who's already here and who's already willing and able and ready to like, you know, roll up your sleeves and get moving yeah. because there are people here who are taking up space and taking up too much time and who are not ready and who are like, well, I don't, you know, like, it's like, we don't need to debate. Like now we need to move to a, a position where, where we're like focused on change. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so yeah, I think like, you know, I was, I, I know a lot of people too. Like, I mean, my son's grandfather is one of those people who's like not into what's going on. I mean, he is in many ways, but also he's sort of just like, you know, he's not going to be marching. He's, he is somebody though, who is, who believes that things should change. And so he could talk to his little cohort of people, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Where he is. Right. And so I think it's got to be like, you know, each one teach one, everybody stay in there, everybody stay in their lane. And, you know, and don't worry if folks have not like jumped on to yeah. the um bandwagon yet, like, because you have to talk to who's already here and, and get those people out the door and on, on their foot soldier mission. Right. Mm -hmm. And if we're waiting for everybody to catch up before we send the boat out, like the boat will not even be able to, yeah. to move. Right. So right. send them out. And then let's just like, wait for the, like, let these people come when they're ready, but like, let these people go out into the world with more tools, more confidence and, and with a community of people that they can be doing this work with. Hi, I'm Jamie from Off The Gram. Launching a podcast is a lot of work. Luckily, Gotham Podcast Studio has everything you need to get started. Whether you just need an hour of recording time or a jumpstart with full-service production, Gotham Podcast Studio offers high-quality audio and video recording, reduced membership rates, podcast hosting services, and much more. All from their studio located in the heart of Manhattan. Visit GothamPodcastStudio.com for more information. Now, back to the show. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to help. We want to get the word out. We have to, I mean, we want to, we haven't even introduced the topic yet. Our topic we, yet. Want to get, we want to get your word out. We want to do so much. We need like three more episodes with you. But no. Should I before we lose you. Yes. Before we lose you. This is very important. <laughs> okay. I'm going to, I'm going to dive in. Okay. So in the United States, black women die from pregnancy related complications three to four times the rate of white women. This is true. No matter how much money they make, how much education they have, or where they live. Systemic inequities like poor access to adequate health care and insurance, medical racism, food deserts, and the lack of generational economic mobility all factor in. On top of higher fatality rates, Black women are also statistically more likely to experience pregnancy complications, including hypertension, placenta disorders, gestational diabetes, blood disorders, and preeclampsia. Why? Our guest wrote in a recent Cosmo article, why is safety during childbirth even up for debate? 
our country needs to treat maternal health care the same way we do reproductive rights. If we fight for contraception and women's rights to choose, then why shouldn't we also stand up for the right to have a safe and healthy childbirth? We should all be furious that black women are dying from preventable pregnancy-related causes, and we are. Latham, help us help all the black mamas. <laughs> How can we, as a society, change this? As the expert on mater- maternal health that you are, what can we all need? To, what do we all need to know? And how can we help? And what can we do? I mean, Latham, well, this is Heidi, this is, and like uh, this is a topic that I like can't even like it. It makes me nauseous to hear the stats, and like I get I actually get full body chills hearing them every time I hear them. And I don't know if anybody watched that Lennox Hill documentary, but they really highlighted the issue even before this whole movement happened. So that was great, but like it didn't take any steps to fix it. So. Yeah, so, um, well, understanding that the numbers are connected to lives is really key, right? So I think um, one of the things that happens when we talk about uh, death is, like, um, it's hard for people to take action or to even think of something as critical if it's, um, if it's a, a large number of people, you know, there's this whole thing like one death is, you know, a uh, tragedy, but a hundred is um, statistic, right? Totally. So you can't really wrap your head around it unless you start to hear storytelling. And so that's why it's so important to have our stories told. Like and, the one you told in Cosmo, that was like, yes, horrific. Yeah. So the, sh- the story that I shared there was um, about a recent death in New York connected to um, some of the gaps that we've seen um, medically uh, as a result of COVID-19. And it was um, a woman who was 26 years old named Amber Isaac. Um, her partner and her were navigating this process. Um, she actually had, you know, someone who was in the medical system who was also sort of helping her. So to have a family member um, helping and still not get adequate care was hugely an issue as well for her. She was at the Montefiore uh, Hospital in the Bronx. And, um, you know, for her to have been getting uh, virtual treatment and not actually getting any blood work done, having any screenings where they would have been able to uh, assess that she had help syndrome, which is um, characterized by... Um, uh, basically the blood doesn't clot, right? Um, and so what ended up happening, like there's low platelet levels, her platelet levels are dropping for months. Um, and since February and they didn't figure it out until April. And so when she went in the day before her delivery, um, they diagnosed it. Right. And then she had an emergency delivery. The baby was like four weeks, three or four weeks early. Um, yeah. And unfortunately and tragically, you know, she did not get to, get to meet her son, um, because she coded on the table in the surgery, her blood was like water. And so, um, you know, like her partner was there and like, wasn't able to see her, like all these things, he had to bury her on his birthday, you know, with no, um, people around. Right. And no celebration of life. And, and so um, he's actually working now to help erect a birth center in the Bronx and to help remove some of the the um, barriers that we have to out-of-hospital birth in, in New York. Because uh, one of the things that I think is really important right now is to think about what does it look like to, in, in a time of pandemic, for instance, like 
you know, many people tried to like do home birth or birth center and it wasn't possible for many people to transfer because, you know, we've built systems against midwifery in this country. And so we don't have enough midwives to care for the people who even want to have an out of hospital birth. We also don't make sure there's insurance coverage. We penalize people for choosing um, an option uh, um, outside of the hospital. And so um, it becomes really challenging for people to practice. And depending on what state you're in, it's even illegal to birth um, with a midwife, right? So seeing things like this, um, like it's infuriating, but it also makes us like act, right? And so what we've seen is that um, since 2018... I would say 2017, 2018, but really like starting around 2017, there were some seminal pieces, um, ProPublica and New York Times pieces around black maternal health crisis in this country. Um, and what, what occurred as a result uh, of these, of these pieces is, um, there was sort of a, um, this awakening, right? And journalism can do that, right? Media can do that where it can, it can, uh, create a platform to uh, spark a visceral connection for people to a certain subject, right? And so that's what that did in that moment where suddenly everybody wanted to figure out what can I do? And so what we saw is a lot of people came to do a training. And um, and since 2018, we were able to educate hundreds of doulas from our programs are in New York, LA, Miami, and Paris. And now they're online, um, obviously, for since March for COVID, we've had maybe five programs online. And so we're going to be online for the rest of the year. But um, we saw that that was a huge draw. And many people who reached out, it was like, I want to do something because of this crisis, right? And so that was one thing. Another thing is that, you know, since we don't have enough, do, um, not just doulas, but enough midwives, you know, is um, one of the acts that people can do is to sponsor the education of a midwife, right? Like there's people who are probably in your own communities who are interested in going to school. It's expensive. It's super expensive to go to medical school, nursing school, middle free school. And so, you know, maybe seeing if, is there a local college or um, organization online where you can just set up so you can do recurring payments that can go into their fund for scholarship? Is there a particular person that you follow on Instagram or whatever that's working towards, you know, getting, um, you know, their certificate or whatever, you know, um, those people uh, really need support. And so, you know, a lot of people I've seen are doing like these individual scholarships. We have a donation button through our website. So a lot of people have been donating to, um, for the doulas to get scholarships for folks who, you know, can't afford the training. It's cost prohibitive for so many people, especially during COVID where people are furloughed, people have lost their jobs. People are trying to figure out when they're going to get their next meal. They can't like now afford to do a training. Right. And so, We've seen a lot of people who've um, who felt that and who've wanted to donate. And so um, that's happened also. But I think the other things are, you know, to bring in people who are from these communities who understand this unique position and this information to come teach, you know. So we teach in like um, in first and second year medical students. You know, I teach like I teach in hospitals, teach universities, but also um, I think it's important for those of us who are like learning this stuff to bring it into our spaces. You know, what I've seen, for instance, is like in writer's rooms, right? Where they're bringing in people like us to talk about this so that they can write it into shows that are addressing, you know, like hospital care. Um, we work really closely with the folks at Lenox Hill um, and uh, the um, Northwell Health, you know, hospitals. Well, and stuff. Lenox Hill. So, 
Yeah. So, you know, those, they're, we're like tight with those people. And so I think like, you know, making sure that there's a, a open relationship of, um, and one of partnership really so that we can improve maternal care, um, in the system and not uh, perpetuate this sort of, um, idea that like we're enemies. We're actually fighting for the same goal. But, um, but yeah, there are like things that happen within the medical system that are not, um, aligned or not conducive for the experience that most people, um, want. Like, and so I think for us to like understand that when certain people go in, like two people go in, one white and one black, they're having two different experiences and that's real. Right. And so for people to understand that today in 2020, that like I could go in and my life could be threatened and I have all the education. I know all the things I could possibly know. I know how to advocate for myself. Right. But that there are barriers. There are ways that I can be treated that could lead to a poor maternal health outcome is unacceptable. And we should, we really shouldn't accept it. And so why I said that we need to bring the same energy that we bring to, you know, the, you know, the right to choose and this idea about like um, birth equity is on the same continuum as, um, you know, as reproductive rights. Like it, it's the, it's, there's not like one or the other. It's like the person who chooses an abortion. I mean, if we can even call that a choice, you know, because it's obviously contained within a context of so many, um, things that happen in someone's life, many which are circumstantial, financial, mobility in different ways. There's so, uh, obviously the context of like how it occurred is a huge thing. And so there's so many reasons why people have to go down that path or choose it. Um, and the person who chooses to have a baby, that's the same person at a different point in their lives, right? It's not like there's one type of person who chooses to have a child, one type of person who chooses an abortion, one type of person who chooses to, um, go through perimenopause, one type of person who chooses to have a period. It's the same person at a different point in your life journey, right? And so, but what we know is that every single life juncture at every single part of the reproductive continuum, we are legislated against. There's legislation against you at every single part. As soon as you get your period, there are rules, but there are, there are laws, right? Keeping you from having your period in freaking peace. Like there's period poverty in this country. We should not have people, we should not go to a public restroom and not be able to get, um, you know, uh, period products. You should not be able to have, you shouldn't have to pay for them at your job. You shouldn't have to pay for them, period, and pay tax on them, right? Like there are people who can't even afford or can't even go to, to, to work because they can't afford their, their menstrual products, right? It's a real thing. There's homelessness and our homelessness problem is compounded by people who have periods, you know, who have to live homeless and don't have places to, to take care of their hygiene. So it's a, it's a huge issue there. It's a huge issue when we come to, you know, pregnancy and whether or not you want to have the baby, everybody's business all of a sudden who is not in your uterus, but it's all their business. And then suddenly when you have the baby, it's whether or not you survive the birth, right, is on the table. And then when you have the baby and you survive, then it's breastfeeding, which became legal in all 50 states like three years ago, publicly, right? It's insane. Publicly breastfeeding just three years ago in all 50 states that became legal. And well, then, just because it's legal doesn't mean it's accepted. So it's not like, accepted. It's not publicly accepted. People not. are shamed for breastfeeding and like, they're so, you know, publicly. So this idea, and then also we have 
incredible lobbying of formula companies that make that are undermining your uh, your a biological imperative that is in place for you to breastfeed. And many people will find their way to do that, and it's undermined the entire time. As soon as you move into the hospital, before you even go to the hospital, you go to Dwayne Reed and you buy some baby wipes for makeup, and they're going to send you formula coupons. Everybody's undermining you, right? And then, and there's laws in place too, right? And so then breastfeeding and then perimenopause, we disappear people when they're going through menopause. We disappear people when, when they're not youthful, right? And so there's like, there's everything turns us away from our bodies in this culture. Everything turns us away from information that is going to uh, rally us in a way that will come together. Everything is about siloing issues. It's not a siloed issue. This is a reproductive justice journey and it includes abortion. It includes uh, healthy birth. It includes breastfeeding. These are all a part of that journey. And so we have to fight for each one. And it can't be that we fight for one or the other. Like if I'm just because I don't have any more children on the way, Lord willing, just because I don't have any more babies, doesn't mean that I can't now stand on the front lines with you as you fight for abortion or that I'm not going to stand up, you know, until, you know, my last breath to make sure that we protect the safety and sanctity of childbirth. I have to fight for all of it. And so because I know what it's like to have to hold somebody's hand because they didn't have anybody to go with them when they had to get an abortion for a baby that they very much wanted and also for a baby that they had ambivalence about, right? I know what it's like to be on that side of it as a doula. I also know what it's like to be on the side of as a doula who has to support somebody, you know, who is, um, who has a, 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 a late term, um, stillbirth, you know, like who has to deliver their baby, right? At 37 weeks. And it's not going to live. It's not coming. Like they have to choose how they want to have that birth, knowing they're going to give birth to a baby who's not alive. I know what that's like to also have someone who has had a near miss, right? So there's all these things that we have to look at that are, are part of this experience. And, and we have to understand that just because it's not our experience, we still have to fight, right? And that's really what I would like to see more of is, um, is all of us coming together and looking and seeing like, well, I had this experience. That's interesting that this person had, how is it possible that that was their experience? What do I need to learn about like the, the inequities? What do I need to learn about, you know, my local hospital? What do I need to learn about, um, you know, my, uh, my local, um, you know, my policymakers? What do I need to learn about what's on the agenda politically, but also what's on the agenda in terms of, the feminist movement and how do we bump this up to the top, right? To make sure that we're not only fighting for abortion, but that like black women survive birth and Native American women survive childbirth. What are we thinking about in terms of economics, right? When it comes to, you know, doula work and access, you know, like doula should be paid for their work. You know, people who do this work to support, um, birthing people and midwives, right? Like they should be, they should be, um, uh, paid well. And also, um, insurance should not be like this thing where people cannot like, you know, figure out how to navigate. It should be easier. And the final thing I would say is look to see what sort of legislative barriers are in place for out of hospital birth. It should be much easier for midwives to set up birth centers. It should be much easier. I mean, people are setting up all kinds of stuff. Like, I mean, all kinds of little businesses here and there that I don't, and that are illegal 
and it's easy, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and someone who has the training and has the commitment cannot like set up a practice that could take care of, by the way, anybody who is interested and willing, but also that is, um, that has the, the health, right? Like, cause you want people who are low risk, right? For, for anything that's out of hospital. So low risk patient is not getting told, by the way, is not getting told like you should look into out of hospital birth, right? As an option. We should be saying this because it's not safe to go into hospital during COVID. It's not like, I mean, it is now it's better in New York, right? They're not as strained in New York, but it's like, we don't want to send people into the place where like, you know, two floors down, there's a COVID unit. It's stressed. People are not able to handle you the same way. Like if you don't have a high risk experience lying ahead, you should be getting the entire bevy of options presented to you. Your doctor should do that. So is your midwife should do that. Everybody should say, here's what it looks like. Here's what's available to you. And you choose not like, oh, we're going to keep all the money and try to hog this and make the experience one that's, um, I mean, challenging. You'll read a lot of stuff. If you can go look and see some of the people who reported what it was like giving birth without their partner or without their doula. And by themselves in PPE with people like not even checking on them and delivering with their doctor by themselves with a nurse, right? Like how horrifying that was for many people who are coming on the other side and having to process that experience and the trauma of not being with their loved ones for life events, right? We have to get this right. And so there is a balance between safety and experience. And we want to make sure that we protect people, obviously, in a time of a pandemic. But we also want to make sure that we don't, um, that we don't like harm people as we go through this. There's a way to make sure that you could have the person of your choice with you to support you through that experience and make sure that you feel like you have someone who can also, also, um, advocate alongside you. So we have to make sure that if we ever get to this place again, and we're still fighting, right? Because doulas are still not fully back in the hospitals yet. You know, we have to make sure that when we get back to this, that, we, that we stand up, you know, and people did when, when doulas got kicked out of the hospital and, and partners got kicked out, there was a huge petition. I signed it. City, <laughs> right. Like everybody signed it. And then governor Cuomo reversed and put in an order to reverse that, you know, in all, all hospitals, he put an emergency order in place. And so it only lasted for about a week. Um, you know, that, that issue, but a lot of people delivered in that week. Right. So yeah. we just want to make sure that we protect everybody. So it, 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 it means like staying on top of the issues. It means signing up for petitions, newsletters. It means going to websites. It means reading op-eds. It means reading, you know, um, just getting alerts on your phone on certain topics so that you can be abreast. And it also means putting your money, you know, and resources where organizations are doing this work on the ground and learning about not just people that you hear of all the time, but there are people who are on the ground who are doing their work that are closer to the solutions because they're, because they are, they are the ones who are actually suffering the problems, right? So there are people who you haven't heard of, organizations you haven't heard of, who are doing amazing work. And so I challenge people to research those, find out who's in your actual neighborhood, not just, you know, who's most popular on Instagram or whatever, because people who are well-resourced don't need the money. The people who don't have the money and who are doing the work and where the money is going to go directly to the people that they're serving, those people really need the money, right? Because they also know how to use it. You know, when we think about include anything, we'd love to include, if you could give us anything, any resources and, you know, we can put them in the I show notes. We would just that, love to that's help. That's homework, right? That's not my job. That's the No, homework. no, no. I know. No, I know. But I mean, <laughs> uh, if there's anything else that you really, really want to put out there, definitely, you know, give us what you want also. Okay. 
Joe knows everything, but we okay. we are doing we will. Okay, yes, yeah, I want the the listeners yes. to like, go and actually do this as homework to kind of like. Let me look and see what organizations in my neighborhood. Let me see what's like who like diversify my list of people I'm following. Right. Like look to see who these people are and look, read the op eds, because what I love about some of the the, re- the fascinating articles that are coming, people are giving a lot of resources in these articles. Right. And so I think that um, while I can compile an amazing list, I want people to find organizations that resonate for them. And I want people to do the work of actually, because it takes actual energy, right? To research and all that. So, so do that, do that work, spend some time, ask people, who are you supporting? Who have you committed to? Right? Like, um, you know, of course I could say a ton, but I don't, I don't feel like that's useful. It just gives people a checklist, right? Like it doesn't make them actually do the work. So do the work, go do the research, go find organizations, look to see what, what your hospital. I mean, a lot of people are even supporting their local hospital mm-hmm. and saying, Hey, we have PPE to give. I know how to sew. Let me make some mat, like whatever it is, do that. Right. But when it comes to also maternal health, look to see what's going on in your community locally. Look to see what the national conversation is. Look to see what the reports say. You can go to the CDC, obviously for that. We have a ton of stuff on Mama Glow around, around these issues as well. But, um, but, but yeah, stay in the know and then talk, start talking in your circles, right? Mm-hmm. And seeing like, what can we do collectively? Like there's five of us on this call. What could we collectively do? Five people could do a lot, right? And so come up with an action and do something sustainable that you can continuously do, whether it's like, okay, every month we're going to like the money's going to draw, draw out of my account monthly, but also I'm going to do like, um, a live once a month with a leader in this space. Um, I'm also going to do um, a blog post or I'm going to, you know, assign, um, you know, a an op ed to somebody from, you know, whatever, like find little ways that you can, because those little things that are like probably a nothing thing for you to do means a huge difference for somebody who's like, right, trying to like keep their their head above water, especially when it comes to um, running a nonprofit or, or doing work that's on the ground. Right. So so finding the ways that, you know, that you can uniquely give. And that also might be of service. It might be like Heidi doing like a yoga class on Zoom for really stressed out moms who are suffering postpartum depression or anxiety because they've been in their house for three months with a newborn and haven't been able to be with their family members, right? It might mean, so like find what that is for Great you. Great idea. <laughs> right? Like find what that is for you. Except I think you need to take the class, Heidi, because I think you're the stressed out mom. <laughs> Love you, mean it. Love you too. I want to say are very like, yeah, right? okay, everything's fine here. Nothing's wrinkled here. She is not stressed. But Latham, I really your point because I will say this, um, you know, like many people, and like Christine was saying earlier, like many people, I tried to take a stand and, and speak my support in the beginning days of BLM and everything that was going on. And I got a lot of, um, blowback from friends in my own community. And at first it really stung. And then actually somebody came to me, a woman, I don't know, a follower. And she said, you have to go deep on this. And I love the way she put it to me. She said, you have use your yoga. And it, when she, because she said it that way, it resonated so much. And she was like, you have to stop being so sensitive. Listen to what they're saying. And they're yelling at you because they're angry and they're, and they're trying to be heard. And you might not have listened to them if they didn't say it that way. And it created this whole cascade that I shared all about on my, on my, I kind of shared the whole process as it unfolded for me uh, with my community. Cause it was maybe the most powerful, like five days of my life. And I had mm phone comfort. And some of the things that I did, the ways that I showed up were just so 
simple. I had a call, phone call with one of these people who, by the way, had like re- cursed me at one of my best friends who ripped ripped in, you. in a moment you. of anger. And, um, but I went to him and I said, like, anyway, it, it was a whole long thing. And I sat on the phone with him on a FaceTime for an hour and I listened to him about his experience of life. That's it. Day to day life as a black man in America. And we cried together and, uh, yeah, it was the most, it was, it was wonderful. And, and since then we've become so much even closer from him. And he's one of my best friends in the world. I consider him family. We often joke that he's the third person in my relationship with my husband. And, and, I, and the, this made us so much closer. But all of that said, the work that I did after that occurred was exactly what you're saying. I was challenged to, um, to take action, but not in a way that was just like checking a box. And so I said to my husband, I really want to, we were in Maine, so I couldn't like join the protests. There were no protests. I was in literally the woods. Um, and I said, I want to donate, but I don't just want it to be like, uh, an empty donation. Like, first of all, I said, first of all, it has to hurt. It's got to be like enough money where it really like, like, it's not, you know what I mean? It's got to be a little chunk of money that really makes us uncomfortable, but also, I want us to spend the entire day and do the research. And this is not, I don't like, I'm not asking for like a medal for doing the research. What I'm saying is because I did the research and I took one day of time to really go through these websites, read people's stories and testimonials, understand what these organizations were about. I talked to other people that were helping to curate and create these lists uh, on Instagram. And they suggested to me, like, how about this doula service? Because your brand is about wellness and women. And I was like, oh, yeah. So I started researching, you know, doula services and it was so powerful. And I just really like how you framed that because I really do think that everyone's work is different. And to Christine's point from earlier, I think a lot of people are so scared right now to do the hard work because they don't know what to do. So like maybe at this point they're retreating and doing nothing, showing up this matter can look so many different ways. And as long as you're showing up, you're doing it right. Am I right? Yeah, I think showing up is important. And I think like worrying about doing things right and perfect or saying the right thing or the wrong thing, like, yes, there is, um, yes, there is merit in an intention. Yes, something could also hurt even if it was intended to be good. But if you show up and you're like, I'm just here to learn and to help. And I know that I'm going to make mistakes. Like if you just accept that part of doing something new, especially when it's happening at this time in your life, not when you're like two, you know what I mean? That it's going to be fraught with mistakes. Like you have to under, you have to just accept, like I'm going to make a mistake here. I'm not saying that to excuse myself, but I'm saying that to forgive myself so that I don't feel, um, uh, paralyzed in doing something, right? Because if you, if you get like, oh, it's gotta be this and oh, look how they wrote that. I gotta now with my, like, no, you're gonna get stuck. So just like, you know, do it. And as you do it, like people, it's iterative. So the cool thing is for those who in here are like editors, it's like, it's like editing on the go. Like it's like a life edit where someone's like, Hey, babe, that's not how you say that. We do this now. Cool. You know, like I'm learning from the young people, certain things like slangs or whatever, or I'm learning like, um, you know, even just when it comes to inclusivity, um, I'm learning so many new terms that are, I'm like, okay, cool. Okay. And then like, I'm like, okay, yeah, 
wait, like it used to be this, now it's this. Cool, right? Like, but you gotta learn that these things are changing as we go. It's it's like um it's malleable, it's pliant. So we have to be flexible and how we move and how we think, but also it with ourselves, right? We have to be flexible and know that. Yeah, like sometimes they're gonna say some shit. It's gonna come off right. It's gonna ring in the right room, and I might say the same thing to another group of people, and it might it might be offensive. That's like that meme that was going around that said like to all the people who are uncomfortable right now, like that's the point. Like it's not you're not supposed to be comfortable doing this. Yes, and it's not about you, right? Like it's not about your how you feel because you said this thing. It's like you know, and it's not about you like finding a way to feel good in okay I said it right it's no it's just about you doing the right thing speaking up when something's wrong like that's what we're supposed to do period right it's like you see children do this all the time right they're the arbiters of justice like little kids are like oh no no no, that's not fair they took my this they right they know they are so clear on what's right and wrong like so freaking clear kids got this shit figured out like kids are not over here like figure it no it's like they start fighting and then you watch them fight and they're like let's just hug you know <laughs> and it's just like it's over you know it's amazing though how they do it and how we get in the way we screw them up you know we're the ones with all these things that we have to complete and then figure out and then bust down like in our 30s and 40s and stuff now this is an opportunity i think for us to like yeah look and see like okay yeah I wasn't taught this stuff. It's not my fault that I wasn't. It was set up this way. And so now I have to actually do the work to unlearn and unbind myself from this and from also the the feeling that I have to be right and perfect and good at it. I got to release myself from that too, because that's also something I've been trained. That's also like a function of patriarchy, right? To, to move in that way. Let me just like step outside of that and say, all right, let me, um, let me address this, see how it goes. And I can ask for feedback. I can say like, you know, I want to make sure, you know, like, was that okay? Like you can ask, you know, is it, did that sit okay? Is this okay? Like you don't have to just, um, feel like you're making a speech and then it sits and, you know, it's like, it's a conversation. Right. And like I said, it's iterative. All this stuff is like about us learning as we go. And if we can commit to learning, then we can commit to growing, right? And if we can learn and if we can listen, right, then we can learn, right? And so we're listening. There's a lot of listening happening. There's a, reading, a lot of reading happening. Now we apply that, right, to practice. And as we practice, as all of us know, because we all done went to school, we all have gone to universities or whatever we've done, we've all done all types of trainings, is after the learning is application, right? Like you don't just get, you know, a degree in something that you haven't done to practice yet. We only have certain areas of um of practice where we do that, unfortunately, in this country. But most, you practice the thing before you have practicum, you know, after you've done like the study, right? And and so this is part of the practicum. You're reading the books, you're reading the essays, you're in the dialogues, you're listening to the podcast. Podcasts are a powerful way because you get to listen and you start to entrain some of the things that are happening and coming through that that medium. And then you apply it, right? And then it's like you have these conversations and, and, and I would, I would challenge us to not call them like difficult or tough, but these are just conversations, right? That should be had, right? That we should just be having, right? Like anything else. It's like, if I have to talk to my son about, you know, his safety as he heads out the door, you know, as a 16 year old at 6'4", like it's not a difficult conversation. It's one, it's one that I don't want to have. 
but it's not difficult. It's part of life. It's part of the structure of like, you know, what this country is right now. And so I think each of us then has to say, you know, like we have to look at it as like we're a village and part of village keeping is all of us like looking after each other and how I look after my son is you looking after my son, us looking after each other means that like the things that matter to you and the things that are a crisis for you become for me, right? Like your issue now becomes important to me. Like I want to align with your struggle because I want to make sure that I'm fighting for what you need right now. What you need in this moment is equity. What you need in this moment is food security. What you need in this moment is housing security, education, like all these things. Right. Um, and so I need to like, not just be focused on what I want people to really take away is that the moment is not about black death. Right. Like I know that we see that everywhere. We see signaling through repeats of, of lynchings on television and um, which for the people who look like that, it's a signal that this can happen to you. Right. Like that is the reminder that we get when we see this in the media, when we see it on social media feeds, like that's the reminder we get. What we need to focus our energy on is not just the outrage for that. But the outrage that there are people living on the street, the outrage that are people who do not have access to uh, medical care and insurance, that there are systems working on us before we're born. There are systems working like while my child is inside growing, there is a system that's already working against him. You see what I'm saying? So we need to be thinking about also how do we protect black life? So so that is really the invitation to right like not to just kind of rally when there's death and because that's important and it's critical but it cannot be the only thing that activates our activism it ha- our activism has to be rooted in life and protection of life and safety for in, in life and equity in life right so what does that look like across the board how do we create equity and and where am i complicit but also where can i also make a difference and each of us can and so I would challenge us to think about like, you know, where are the areas that, that we can make that difference and also make sure that it, it doesn't take like a death for us to, to, to get active, but that we're, we're actually motivated by our sisters and brothers living fully expressed lives as, as something that we want for them to, like we want for ourselves and our children. That's so beautiful. Those are such strong words, Latham. And I'm so glad. I mean, the way that you explained this all today was so powerful and so genuine. And I, it just really grabbed a hold of my heart. And I really appreciate seriously, um, just fundamentally having you and your voice here today. It was like really, really exactly, um, what we all needed today. So thank you so much. And I'd love to kind of end with our karma call. Heidi, this is our, we always do a karma call at the very end and Heidi can explain to you what that is. So the karma call, as you know, the karma is a Sanskrit word for action. So we ask all of our amazing guests, aka you, um, what is one actionable item that all of our listeners could do? Like small item that would yield huge results. So I know you've got a lot of them. All right. So, okay. Here's, here's one. It comes from my book. Um, the new old- one? Yes. The paperback. Tell us the name and where people can find it. Oh, yes. Own Your Glow, A Soulful Guide to Luminous Living and Crowning the Queen Within. Um, everywhere books are sold. Um, Amazon, Hay House, wherever. Um, I mean, I don't know where books are sold anymore. Like, <laughs> right. right. Um, but like, you know, on, in the interwebs. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a practice in there that I have called Confessions of Light. And what it is, is 
uh, I went to Catholic school. Anybody? Um, I went to Catholic school for a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like still unbinding myself from that experience. um, I went to Catholic school and my grandmother was like deeply in the Catholic church and stuff. And, um, and so one of the things that I learned was, and I had to do when I was like eight was go to this thing, um, called a confessional and you go with a priest and it's, and, and for those who don't know, you're in a little dark room, by the way. Like, first of all, like, kids are scared of the dark. So anyway, you go in this dark room, and on one side, there's a priest, and then there's, like, a little door, you know, which you open up, and there's, like, a screen. It's almost like a cane screen. And you can see their shadow. They can see you, and you sit there, and you confess. And so I would go in there, and he was like, you know, you got to confess sins. I was like, I don't sin. I'm eight. I don't sin. I don't even know what that means. So I told my grandmother, I was like, yeah, he's telling me like I have to confess my sins and I don't have any sins. And she said, well, then go talk what you want to talk about. And she's like, well, what do you want to tell? I was like, well, I want to talk about the things that I like. She's like, well, then go talk about the things you like. So then I went back in and for moving forward, I just would talk about butterflies and my sister and my best friend. And, and so that's what I would use the space to talk for. And, um, because I didn't believe that I sinned. And so, um, what I used that practice for and what it evolved for me was, um, this practice that I call confessions of light, which is essentially like, you know, confessing to the people who have made you a better person in the world, people who influence you, the people who you love, who maybe you haven't reached out to in a long time. Maybe there's somebody who needs to hear from you and make a difference in their life, especially because we're all fraught with what's going on around us. Many people feel anxious. Many people are feeling the the weight of quarantine. Some people feel quarantined in their minds. So for you to like reach out and to say like how much you've in, how much they've impacted your life and made it so beautiful, I think could be so helpful and healing for people because we can't hug and be together in the way that we're used to. So this is a way to like swaddle somebody in love. I think that is so needed right now. And so the invitation would be to like do a text, an email, send a letter. You could send them a bouquet, whatever. Mm-hmm. But like. But reach out and um and let them know like how they deeply impacted you. And these could be people you haven't even maybe met. Like what if these are people that you admire online that you could reach out to? These these also could be people who, you know, advance you career wise or folks who helped out with your children or who just helped raise you to be the person that you are. So that's what I would say as um as an action step, um, for us to sort of generate more kindness. And also again, this practice is like for us to be you know, engaging in, um, when we think about like this, this equity thing and, and being seen, right? It's so important to feel seen, to feel heard, to feel a sense of connection, to feel like you belong. And I'm sure many people will say that folks that you probably think are like perfect and have it all together will say that they don't feel that or they don't feel like they belong or they don't feel connected. And, um, and maybe some of these people don't even feel loved, right? And so, um, for you to like be able to give that, um, could really shape somebody's day, change the trajectory of their, of their day or their, their week even. So I would say that that's a great thing for us that we can just do as soon as we get off of here. Um, right. To do in the world and just to have your kids do it. Like it's a great, it's a great practice. So, so I'm going to do it today. Um, so maybe we could all commit to doing that. Thank I'm you. committing awesome. to that. Great words to leave us with. Well, totally. Thank you so much, Latham. And thank you all at home for joining us today and tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe everywhere. Podcasts are listened to. So Apple, Spotify, <laughs> iHeart. We're all sorry, guys. We're all over the place. And also don't forget to follow us on the gram at Off The Gram Podcast. See you next time. Bye.